let me check these air conditioners. What is that? Is that set? All right, it's hot in here. Uh, okay, we're in the book of Jude. We tr- hopefully finish this up this morning. If you remember, uh, if you were here on Wednesday night, you know that the timing of this book is that it was uh, written shortly after the book of Second Peter, and I believe shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, and the reason that is the case is because the things that Peter talks about in Second Peter chapter two, specifically. Uh, in dealing with these people that were going to come, that were going to sneak in secretly, and they would have these destructive heresies, he calls them, and they would use words. Actually, we translated it plastic. You know, the words were twistable or whatever, and so the language they used was in such that they could make it mean whatever they wanted it to mean. And so Peter was warning them that this is coming, this is going to happen. And when Jude writes this book, Jude is writing about the fact that it's here. You know, they're already dealing with some of these things that Peter had warned them about, and so it's got to be after Second Peter, but it can't be too long after. And the reason I put it just before the destruction of Jerusalem is because uh, after the destruction of Jerusalem, there really wasn't any Jewish influence whatsoever, if you will. And so uh, referring back to these things that would have been recognized, Old Testament accounts that they would have been very familiar with the readers, tells us that this is probably before that time frame, or at least it, it does for me. Uh, So Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, uh, also the brother of James. James wrote the book with his name on it. James was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Jude, like his brother James, doesn't even identify himself as the brother of Jesus. He just calls himself the servant, right? Uh, And maybe some of that was because, as we talked about on Wednesday night, you know, there are certain things uh, that when we associate them with the Bible times or with Jesus or even with the apostles or whatever, the early church, that we kind of place on a higher plane than others. Like, for example, you know, when I say the Holy Land, you know what I'm talking about, right? And yet the dirt there is not any different than here. Well, it may be made up of something different, but it's no more holy, right? It's no more holy than here, but we, we say that because it's associated with where the earthly ministry of Jesus was and, and all of that. So I think probably at least a portion of the reason that James and Jude don't identify themselves specifically in their introduction as being the brother of Jesus is because, well, people would look at them and think that makes them even higher, right? And the truth of the matter is they actually started out completely different as they didn't even believe what he said. They didn't believe his, in him during his ministry at all. In fact, they opposed him during his ministry, and it wasn't until after the resurrection that that changed. So what Jude's writing about is he's warning these Christians about the challenges of these teachers that have come in and what they're saying and they have opposed. Uh, If if you were here on Wednesday night, you know, we finished that section about their rejecting of authority. They speak evil of the dignitaries or those who are responsible for the, uh, the carrying out of what God has set forth. And then we talked about that account where uh, Moses has died. And of course, we read in the Old Testament where it happened and nobody knew where his body was, right? Yet what Jude records for us is there was this battle that occurred, and the battle that occurred was between Michael and the devil over the body of Moses. And again, we got into that idea of, you know, elevating things. If, 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 if Israel had the body of Moses, it becomes like a god to them, right? And so God protected that from happening. And, but even Michael doesn't, doesn't judge the devil as he allows that to happen by God. But now we go back to these teachers who are referenced there in verse 10, and let's read a little bit and see what he says about them. 
But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, and these things, they corrupt themselves. So, again, that was the last verse we did on Wednesday night, and these people talk about things that they don't understand. They answer things that they don't know the answer to, but they want to look important, and they twist around even things that they ought to know better about. Verse 11, Woe to them, for they've gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Let's stop there a second. That's three accounts from the Old Testament. Do you remember what those uh, accounts had to do had in common? Let's talk about Cain. What was the sin of Cain? Be careful. That's a trick question. Well, first place he did sacrifice, but. If you were here Wednesday night, Don's lesson, he asked you when the first word, when sin appeared first in the Bible. Was anybody here? And if you were, do you remember it? Yeah. It was the account of Cain, but it was even after the sacrifice when he became angry with his brother. And God said, you better be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. Right? All right. He gave in, and then he killed his brother. So he gave in to anger. Right? He had anger, and it got out of control, and it caused him to go into even further sin. Well, what about the account of Balaam? Do you remember what happened with that account? Greed. Because, remember, Balak shows up and says, Hey, I need you to come and curse these Israelites. And he said, No, I can't do that. I can only say what God wants me to say. And he said, Well, you know, go ask him again, because here's some money and some honor I'll give you. And so he went back and asked him again, and God said, No. So he came back and said, Okay, here's a little more money and a little more prominence and all that and he asked him again god finally said all right go ahead go do what you want to do anyway what caused him to to do it greed wasn't it all right what was the last account that he just talked about Korah. do you remember that one but what what was the problem what what did they what did the what happened in the account but why what were they after yeah See, remember the, the rebellion against the authority, the pride that took them there. What happened was they showed up and God had chosen Moses and Aaron, right? In fact, he had done that even before they, he sent them to Israel, didn't he? The account of the burning bush, that's where Moses is there. And when he's offering all those excuses about it, didn't God say, I'm going to send Aaron with you as your spokesperson? So God had chosen these individuals to lead this nation. And so all of a sudden these people, Korah and others, show up and say, look, we're just as important as you are. We ought to have the same authority you have. And, and as a result of that, that pride of not having the positions of importance that they thought they deserved, well, they died. So the point is, if you put all of those together, the combining effect of all of them tells them that these false teachers are following their emotions. It's what they want. It's what they feel. What would cause somebody to have the truth, to know the truth, and to teach something else? What would cause you to do that? If you know the truth, you know the truth about the plan of salvation, how to become a Christian, you know what the Bible teaches about it, you understand it, you have somebody else in your family or something else that believes differently, what would cause you not to go and talk to them about it? Fear? Fear of what? Yeah, they're not going to like you anymore. They're going to get mad at you. They're going to argue with you. What would cause it is, you don't want, and by the way, that gets back to pride too. You don't want them to be mad at you. You want them to look at you positively, right? To like you. We want people to like us, right? 
So the point is, these teachers are following whatever is their emotions. They, they're trying to gain. They, want, they have greed and they have pride and they have anger even. Anger at these people who have opposed them. Remember Diotrephes? Diotrephes had cast people out of the church. And the reason was is because those people that were coming in, he thought were a little too important. Keep reading. These are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. There's a whole lot of things there that he uses to describe them. Let's break down a few of them. Anybody have a word other than spots? They're spots. Reefs. It's actually a hidden reef. Uh, what's the purpose of a lighthouse? Yeah. It's not just to show people where to go. Sometimes it's shown where not to go. <laughs> a lighthouse keeps these the, the shipping uh, environment safe, right? Okay, but you have a, you look out across the ocean. You know, right here, by the way, off our coast, right there, off of Pex Lake. If you've been on the water. You go south off of Peck's Lake, there are some reefs down there, and if the tide's low enough, you still can't see them. The surface of the water is still just as good as anywhere else. You can't see anything, but then all of a sudden, you're on it. I mean, I was, I was, you're not ever going to want to go boating with me. If you were thinking about it, this is going to tell you no. So I'm in like 20 foot of water, and I've got this equipment that tells me how everything is, and all of a sudden, I'm in one foot of water out in the middle of the ocean. Well, you're going to sink like that, aren't you? What he's saying is the, on the surface, everything looks nice and great with these people, but underneath, it's not. And they're going to wreck your ship. They're going to cause all of this to, to fall apart, and you're going to be hurt in the process. And they're there without any fear. They're not afraid of you. You're not going to oppose them, and you're not going to be a problem for them because they're powerful. They only want what they want for themselves. Clouds without water. Now, I know we're in, it's raining now. Uh, we're in the time of year where it rains every day, right? But... Say three weeks ago, what'd your yard look like? Mine look is a lot more brown than this carpet. And and the clouds would come by every day and you'd think, Oh, it's gonna rain today. Yeah. Clouds that look like they're gonna provide nourishment, but nothing in them. No nourishment at all. Trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. I was trying to figure out how to illustrate that. I don't know that I have a good way to do it. So let me just say it this way. There are certain uh, plants, trees that look like they're dead when they're alive, right? You know what a plumeria tree is? We have a lot of those plumeria trees, and every one of them started from a stick. Uh, we would just get a stick from somebody else, or even from some of our own, and they don't have any leaves on them. And we just lay them under the carport for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then you go out and you stick it in the sand. And for two years, there's nothing that happens to that stick. It just looks dead, right? And then all of a sudden, you have leaves. Okay, so what if you're looking at that tree and you're thinking, that thing's dead. What if you pull it up? It's dead twice, isn't it? <laughs> that actually happened to us. The first one we stuck in the ground, every time it would get roots, a storm would come and blow it over. And we'd stick it back in the ground, a storm would blow it over. Well, is it ever going to produce that way? So what he's saying about these people is, they don't have any, they're not producing anything, and they're not even going to produce anything because they've been ripped up by the roots. Didn't Jesus talk about those people who would be cut out of the tree? Let me read 13 again. 
raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So you got raging waves of the sea. What does that produce? What does it produce productively? It's just a bunch of noise, isn't it? It's just the results of something else, right? Okay, what are stars used for? This is harder to understand this one because, well, we have GPS. Yeah, the ships of the sea, they use the stars for navigation, right? That's because they're fixed, right? So if you can find those fixed points, you can follow and navigate by them and you'll figure out where you're going. But here's the problem. What if the star you're following is a star that is, you know, like an asteroid that's just burning through the environment out there? What if that's what you're following or a comet? How's that going to do as far as giving you direction? And that's the way these people are. They're just making a whole bunch of noise as the waves, but there's nothing productive. And they're like a star that's wandering through the sky that's never going to give you any direction because they don't have it themselves. Keep going. It's a good description, isn't it? Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Well, let me stop there. Who is Enoch? Huh? When? He did not die. Yeah, the only thing we know about Enoch when we read his, well, when he's recorded in the Old Testament, is his lineage. We know where he came from. We know that he's in the lineage of Noah, isn't he? Okay. And we also know that he didn't die. Now, we know that Noah's grandfather died the same year as the flood, right? Okay, so we know that. We know that much about him. only thing we know about Methuselah is how old he was and what year he died. And the only thing we know about uh, Enoch is how old he was and that he didn't die. And the text tells us the reason he didn't die is because he he walked with God, right? So here's what we know. Jude has added something to that. We don't have a record of anything that Enoch Enoch, Enoch wrote or said anywhere but right here in the book of Jude. Not anything that's, that's supportable by scriptures anyway. But what we know is that Noah was given a job. And Noah's job was to tell the world, well, to build an ark but to tell the world that God was bringing judgment, right? Okay, evidently he wasn't the only one talking. When the flood started, who on the earth is alive that's faithful to God? Noah and his wife, three sons, three wives, right? Eight people, right? But Enoch had been faithful. Enoch just wasn't alive when the flood started. So Enoch, during that time, is making a prophecy. And you know what? His prophecy is the same one that that Noah gave. The prophecy is that God is bringing judgment. Was the flood of Noah's day judgment? And what's it a picture of? Future judgment. If God did not... This is what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2. If God did not spare those in the flood, why would he spare those unrighteous today? Keep going. These are murmurers complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. There is nothing more powerful than somebody who can get up before people and make them 
feel good and like them and it gives them power and it gives them control. Why do you think that somebody can have so much power that they can get a whole group of people to drink poison and die? But cult leaders do it, don't they? It's because they get up and they, they use flattering words and they, they, they gain power by influencing everybody around them. They think they're something special. Keep reading. But you. Okay, we've got a contrast. But you, beloved. Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So he says, look, you've heard this before. Remember by this time, I mean, John's going to be the last living apostle, right? And by this time, Peter has likely also already died. So John's it. And so as Jude writes about this, he says, just because those people aren't here doesn't mean you don't know what they said. And on top of that, not only do you know what they said, but you have miraculous inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands yourself. So you know. You know how to pray. You know how to approach God. You know what God expects of you. So you've got all these people out here that are using these plastic words and twisting things around and trying to gain influence and trying to gain power and leading people away from God but you're not like that and the reason you're not like that is because what you know the truth so he's trying to challenge them you remember how this book started if you were here Wednesday night it started by him saying look I wanted to write this great letter about our common salvation and this would be a very positive thing but I couldn't do that because of what's happening I gotta I gotta warn you and protect you and all that it's because they weren't doing it so Jude says, look, you've got all that you need. you just got to stay with it. Keep going. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. This is interesting because here's why he's telling them all of this. It's, it's not just because they're, they're always going to be false teachers, aren't they? All right? It's because people are susceptible to them. That's the problem. And so they have people that have already listened. And so he says, look, some people have listened to it because, well, they just don't know. They just don't know. And you need to have compassion and you need to encourage them and strengthen them and pull them out a little bit. But there are some people who are already in it and they're already in the fire, as it were. Well, do you, if your house is on fire and your kids are in there and you're going to go in there and get them, do you go in and tap, it's the middle of the night, you tap them and say, hey, you need to wake up got a problem we need to get out of the house is that what you do or you just jerk them up out of the bed and get out of the house right so he says you got to know the difference you got to know these the difference in these people who are just in danger because they don't know any better and you need to encourage them and help them and strengthen them and you need to realize there are others who know better yet they're there anyway and the tactic they use to reach them has got to be a little bit more because they're in greater danger right now all right 24 Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. I love the way he writes that because, you know, when he started the book, the beginning of the book, he's introducing himself to them, making sure they know who it's coming from and and who it's going to and why he's doing it. And here at the end, he says basically, 
but it's all about God anyway. You know, the reason we want to stay with the truth is because it's about God. He gave us the truth, and he's the only one that can get us through all of this. You know, I, I can know the truth. I can follow the truth. I can try to protect against the truth. But when it gets back down to it, the only reason I have the truth, the only reason I have the strength to even follow the truth is because God can get me through all of this, right? And that's the way he closes his book. Okay, you got questions before we move on? I've got to rearrange some notes up here. Okay, Revelation. Uh, I have some papers. I have notes so that I don't lose where I am uh, for at least the introduction to this book. I haven't taught the book of Revelation in about, I guess, nine or ten years. Uh, last time I taught it was in the School of Preaching in Peru, so I taught it in five days. It's going to take me longer than five days this time, I can pretty much guarantee you. But I have some papers that I have already prepared. I haven't printed them up for you, but I will. And if you're here on Wednesday evening, I will give you, or even next Sunday, I'll try to give you the the papers that are the introduction to this book to help you hang on to it as we go through the book. Uh, I love the book of Revelation. I love it not because it's any more important than any of the other books. In fact, quite frankly, I think that it's maybe less important. Uh, And what I mean by that is there's not anything in the book of Revelation doctrinally that's going to give you anything that's not found somewhere else. Uh, so you could study the, the New Testament, you can follow God faithfully and be saved even without the book of Revelation. And if that's true, then the question is, why is it here? Well, the reason that it's here and been preserved for us is because, well, sometimes we just need to be encouraged and reminded, don't we? I mean, when you look around in our world today, does it look to you like good's winning? Does it look to you like righteousness is the way that most people are going to go? I mean, you know before anything ever comes up, you know if there's something positive and right that comes up in our country or our world, that evil's going to oppose it greatly, right? So sometimes looking around like that, you kind of need to be encouraged a little bit. And if you think back to their day and when this book was written, which was about A.D. 96, toward the end of the first century, and I'll give you a reason for that here in a minute, Uh, But you think back to what they were going through and what was happening in Rome, what was happening throughout the world with the persecution that was developing and had developed, and you see these people were actually, they weren't just being made fun of and they weren't just being mocked, they were being killed. And you look around and you see that happening and you start to think, I'm not sure God wins this. And so the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book. John did not write in apocalyptic language. John recorded what God showed him in apocalyptic language. And there's a little bit of a difference. The first three chapters in the book, he's just writing these letters and kind of setting the stage. And then in chapter 4, he starts seeing all these visions. And in seeing all these visions, he records what he sees. So God is delivering a message in what's called apocalyptic language. And all the message is, is God wins. If you don't remember anything else in the book, you got to get that one. God wins. That's the whole message of the book of Revelation. Okay, here's what we want to get. Let's spend some time talking about the date. And I'll review some of this on Wednesday night uh, just to make sure we hang on to it. But there are several reasons that I I want to spend more time in the introduction of this book. And one of the things I want to spend time on is the dating. And I've told you on the other books I don't really usually do that. But I do on this book because for two reasons. One is because there's a lot of distinction between which date people accept. There's a lot of different... Uh, pieces of information that some people accept and some people don't accept and it just becomes a big struggle but the second reason is it is significant as to when this book is written 
You know, we just studied the book of Jude. Does it matter in the book of Jude whether it was written in 68 or 80? It really doesn't change the message, does it? But in the book of Revelation, it does change the message. If it was written, as some believe, uh, in the 60s before the destruction of Jerusalem, then the message in the book of Revelation is about what was happening around Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem. If, on the other hand, it's written in AD 96 to 98, something like that, well, Jerusalem's already been destroyed, right? So it's not about that anymore, right? So there is a, there is a reason to try to figure out when this book was, uh, was written. I think there are several reasons that the early date is not acceptable. Uh, and I want to give those to you quickly. One reason that people believe that it was written before uh, AD 70 is because in Revelation chapter 11, you have in this chapter a reference to the temple. Well, where was the temple? It was in Jerusalem. When did it cease to exist? AD 70. So if Revelation 11 is a reference to the existence of the temple still standing, then the book's got to be written before then, right? But the problem with that is, and I'll get into this deeper later, the problem with that is if the book is written in signs, apocalyptic signs, a sign never represents itself, does it? And so you may not know what that temple is in Revelation chapter 11, but what you know it's not is the temple. So that's not evidence for it to be an early date. The persecution of Christians. Uh, some take the early date because they see what happened with Nero. We talked about this, especially as we got into Second Peter, First and Second Peter. But you remember that because of a fire that occurred in Rome in AD 64... And Nero getting persecution from, uh, not persecution, but political fallout from that, that he then kind of manipulated it a little bit, and he blamed that fire on Christians, and so persecution began to, to come into play. It became illegal to be a Christian, right? So persecutions did develop. So people say, see, this is writing about Nero. But the problem with that is the persecution from Nero really was just around Rome itself. Whereas by the time you get to the reign of Domitian, which is later in the... Uh, in the first century, it's worldwide. I mean, Rome is persecuting Christians everywhere they can find them by the time Domitian is, is reigning as the emperor. And he's claiming he's the first one that fully expects people to worship him as a god. So again, it looks like the later date there. Uh, let's see. The condition of the churches. You know, the book of Ephesians was written approximately A.D. 62 by Paul to the church in Ephesus. And one of the things that he commends them for in that, uh, in that letter is their great love for God, right? Okay, but by the time you get to this chapter 2 of the book of Revelation where John records this letter from Jesus to the church in Ephesus, they have left their first love. That's a pretty big leap from A.D. 62 to even A.D. 68 to be in a condition where they are praised for how they are to the place where Jesus says, I'm going to take your lampstand away because you've, you've left your first love. That's a pretty big jump in a very short period of time. On top of that, Laodicea. Laodicea is written to in Revelation chapter 3. And we don't know a whole lot about that church, but we know a lot about that area. And by the time you get to Revelation chapter 3, what he's condemning them for is because they're, they don't have anything good said about them, in fact. They're kind of lukewarm. But beyond that, one of the things he says about them is that they say about themselves that they're very wealthy. Well, you know, in the 60s, uh, Laodicea was completely destroyed by an earthquake. Completely destroyed by an earthquake. Nobody goes into a city that's laying flat because of an earthquake and saying, look how wealthy these people are. It takes some time. They did rebuild successfully and quite well, I, I would say. But that takes time, doesn't it? Even today. How long did it take? We didn't even get that hard of a hit. 
How long did it take the last time we had a hurricane go through here to recover? If you go to Tortola today, it's been two years. Go to Tortola and look and see what it looks like even today. Two years in our modern world with all the money that pours in from all over the world and all the equipment, and it takes time to recover, doesn't it? Imagine doing it all manually. So it just doesn't seem to fit to me this that it could be happening earlier than that. Something else that's significant to me is the early church fathers. I don't read a lot. We call them early church fathers. What that means is these are some of the people that were the teachers and the preachers and the writers during the time after the apostles, primarily, say, from 100 A.D. to 300 or whatever. And these are people who we still have record of what they wrote. And they've got names that I don't pronounce very well, like Irenaeus. And, you know, we have uh, Hippolytus. No, that's not right. Hang on, I've written them down. Let me remember their names. Yeah, it is Hippolytus. Clement of Alexander, Hegesepius. That's probably not right either. Anyway, the reason I use that is because all of those writers said that it was a later date. And on top of that, Irenaeus was a student of a man by the name of Polycarp. You've heard me talk about before. Polycarp was a student of John. If anybody knew when the book was written, it'd be John, wouldn't it? And if John taught Polycarp, he'd probably teach him the right date, wouldn't he? And if Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp, he would have... He would have known what he was talking about too, wouldn't he? And so he wrote also about a later date. None of them wrote an earlier date. And I think specifically, Irenaeus, that carries a little bit of weight, don't you think? So there's reasons for why I date the book somewhere around A.D. 96. And there are, there are others. That's not as deep as it goes. There's quite a bit of others. But I do want to say this. I have some very good preaching friends who hold the date before A.D. 70. I don't have a problem with you if that's you. Like I've already told you. Uh, you know, it, the book has one message, and what is it? God wins. You don't even have to understand. You're not going to stand before God in judgment and have him say, all right, I've got to ask you, did you get the revelation? Oh, I tried, but I just didn't get it. Oh, well, depart from me. It's not going to happen because the rest of the Scriptures gives us what we need. Revelation gives us the encouragement that God wins, Okay. So I don't have a problem if you believe that it's, if you think that I've missed all of this. Okay, how do we interpret this book? Well, I have a couple of suggestions to help us interpret the book. One of them is start over. You know, it's very hard as you have, one of the things that you're supposed to gain as you age is a little bit of wisdom, right? You know, maybe you mess up from time to time and you learn from your mistakes so you don't mess up again. But what really happens is you build on what you have already learned. So as you go through life, there are things, you know, did you start in fourth grade in, you know, algebra class? No, you start by adding numbers together somewhere, right? Or subtracting numbers or whatever. And you start with these little simple basic building blocks of math or history or whatever, English, whatever else you're studying. But as you age, you build on those blocks, right? Okay, what I'm telling you is, if you today decided you were going to forget everything you were ever taught about math, and to go back and start over, when you started over, you know what you'd learn? Two plus two still equals four, doesn't it? Okay, what I'm saying is when it comes to the book of Revelation, especially as we begin this class, I think we start it by forgetting everything that we've learned. Everything that we know about this book because, quite frankly, it's not a scientific number, but I would estimate that at least a very, very conservative number is at least 75% of the books that I have seen on the book of Revelation don't have a clue what this book's about. And so most of what people hear about the book is not scriptural. And one example is, I talked about this with you in First and Second John, is Antichrist. 
You go looking on your religious channel or your religious radio or whatever, and you listen to these preachers out here, and they start talking about Antichrist, they all say the exact same thing. They all go to the book of Revelation, and they talk about this one that's coming at some point, and eventually Jesus is going to show up and fight the battle of Armageddon and cast the Antichrist out, and we're going to have all this worldly peace all of a sudden. Yet Antichrist is not even in the book of Revelation anywhere. Not in the book. Not named. Not hinted at. It's just not there. In fact, John was the only one that wrote about it. And John wrote about it, and he called it anybody who denied that Jesus came in the flesh. And he said, by the way, they're already here when he wrote about it. So my point is, what you have heard about the book doesn't matter. What you have heard about the book doesn't matter. You are never in danger if you have an open heart to what the Scriptures say to start over. You'll always still get back to the truth. Okay, so that's what we want to do. We want to start over, and we want to see if we can get back to the truth. Second thing is important for us to remember is symbols don't represent themselves. I've already brought that up about the temple. They just don't represent themselves. If it's a symbolic thing, it represents somebody, uh, something else. And the illustration I would use is Old Testament, New Testament thing. When you see the Old Testament and God talks about the temple... All right, you understand what that means. But yet when you get to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6, and Paul says, you are the temple of the Spirit, that's not the same one he was writing about in the Old Testament, is it? That's a trick question. It's not physically, but it is a spiritual fulfillment, isn't it? The church is the temple. of. Yet when he talked about the temple, he wasn't talking about the temple, was he? He was talking about the church. So the symbol doesn't represent itself. You might not know what it does mean, but you know what it doesn't mean. Okay, so we're going to keep that in mind. So how do we figure it out? How do we figure out what these, uh, what, what these symbols mean to us? Well, there's several things that are clues or helpful for us. Well, I'm out of time. I better stop. I don't want to start on something and not finish it. So Wednesday night we'll pick up again on the helpful hints to understand what the symbols are. And I'll review again what we've gone over a little bit this morning. Uh, Wednesday night again. I review a lot as we go through Revelation. Maybe that's why it takes so long to get through the book. Uh, Let's close with a prayer.